Good morning, church. Have you ever considered the progression on what biblical maturity looks like? There's something there, but when you actually were to say, like, well, what would that description look like? I'm not sure that, you know, it, it would be easy to describe. 2 Corinthians 3 even says that God transforms us from glory to glory. So he's bringing transformation. He's bringing us from one thing to the next. So with that being said, what I'd like to look at is the idea of the role of the three most common in, uh, functions in the Old Testament, priest, king, and prophet, and that as we move from priest to king to prophet, we see a progression in maturity. Before we dive into that, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for an opportunity to meet in your presence, to just spend time with you. I pray that you will speak to all of us as we, we, um, we spend time in your presence, Lord, today. In your name, amen. So, there's a progression from priest to king to prophet. A really simple example of that is just geographically, if you consider what is the priest's primary location of responsibility, you would say it would be geographically. In the temple, right? The king's primary function or responsibility would be in the land. The prophet has no geographic limitations. He goes where he's told. He goes everywhere. So his responsibility is the world. The way Michael Bowl puts it is this. The priest stands as servant in the temple. The king sits enthroned over the land. And the prophet walks with God throughout the nations of the world. So there's the progression in geographically responsibility between priest, king, and prophet. So let's look at priest. And so let's look at Leviticus 13. One, because I just like an excuse to work Leviticus in any of my sermons. Two, because it's good, it's good to sort of give us an idea of what, what the priest's responsibility is. Leviticus 13, 9 through 13. When a man is afflicted with leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in the swelling, swelling it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body. And the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. And if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin, so that the leprous disease covers all of the skin of the, the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all his body, then he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It is all turned white, and he is clean. Now, that's pretty tedious, but what you'll notice, it leaves little for interpretation, right? This is what you do. Here's how to interpret it. Here's what the response is. There's little, oh, well, you know, like, how do I um, modify this or think through this? This is the rules, and you can go through tons of other examples in Leviticus or Deuteronomy about how the priest is supposed to respond. When you sacrifice an animal, these organs go here, this part goes there, that part goes here, this part gets eaten, that part gets burned. There's little, little room for interpretation. It's all laid out. Another way to think about this, I think, is to look at the first priest in the Bible. That first priest is Adam. And the way I can confidently tell you that that's true 
is, is first, we want to recognize the fact that Eden is a temple. So, five reasons that Eden's a temple. There's more, but five good reasons that Eden's a temple. One, God's space and our space overlap in the temple, which are in, in Eden, just like in the temple. Two, we run into cherubim. Now, when we run into cherubim outside of Eden, where do we run into them? In the temple or in Ezekiel's vision or things like that, which are all places where God's space and our space overlap. So, two, three, orientation of the temple is from east to west. Guess how Eden's laid out? Garden is placed in the east in location to the the overall Eden. It's an east to west orientation, just like the garden. Israel's later temple had wood carvings all over it of trees and flowers. All of that fruit and all of those type of things all throughout the whole entire thing, reminding us of the garden. And finally, just as the river flowed out of Eden, so both in Ezekiel's vision and in Revelation's vision, the rivers flowing out of the center of the temple. So five good reasons why the temp- Eden is the first temple. With that being said, if we look at Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. Now, that work and keep, those are the words abad and samar. Those words, when used in association with the temple or the tabernacle, always respond to a priest. So, with that being said, Adam is the first priest. It's just less obvious to us because we don't read Hebrew. So, because of that, and um, I've included in your notes some of those references to where else it's used for that for your entertainment afterwards. So Genesis 2, 15 through 17 now. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God says, you're a priest. Here's a rule. You're a priest. Here's a rule. Boy, it sounds a lot like Leviticus. Here's, you're a priest. Here's a rule. So in this case, the rule is don't eat of the tree. It's a pretty simple rule. But if we sort of stop and think about it, Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's told not to eat of the tree of good and evil, but Hebrews makes it pretty clear we're to know good and evil and we're to distinguish between it. So there's something about um, difference here in between what we see with Adam and what happens later on. Deuteronomy 1, 39. And as for your little ones who said would come a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall be in there and I will give it to, uh, uh, and I, to them I will give it and they shall possess it. This is Moses talking to the people of Israel, and he's saying that this is what happened. Disobedience happened, and so a bunch of people aren't going to go into the promised land. But those young children who can't distinguish between good and evil will. Now, is he saying specifically those children who can't distinguish between good and evil, or is it more likely that we're saying specifically the idea is, is that children are those who can't distinguish between good and evil? It seems more likely, Right? Uh, And again, you're going back to Hebrews and that type of thing. So the idea is there is a maturity that comes with learning that teaches us good and evil. Adam disobeys and seizes it 
instead of being taught it as he should have been. So Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 16. Now this is Moses talking to the people and he's talking about the law and its importance. And he says, see, I have set, and, and this is then God, he's saying what God is saying to them. See, I have set before you today life and, and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So again, for today I've set before you life and good, death and evil. A little bit later on he says, I have set before you a blessing and a curse. This sounds very similar to what was just told to Adam, right? It's life, good and evil, that type of thing that is being offered to us. Those are our choices. And in the same way, the new law offers a very similar sort of choice. So both with the priests and with Adam, the first priest, we get obedience is the primary response. Obedience is the first step in maturity. That if we don't obey, we have problems. So uh, Daniel Hoffman, when writing about the uh, first, this rule about why you shouldn't eat of the tree of good and evil, says it this way, God laid a temporary prohibition on his children who were set to grow into wise and mature and free adulthood by way of obedience. So to grow into maturity is to start at obedience. James Jordan, who I'm drawing a majority of what, we're teaching, what I'm teaching on today from, says it this way, in the first phase of maturity, the faithfulness of the, Lord, of the people of God is primarily expressed in the form of obedience to commandments. So we start as priests and we start as obedient. And then from there, we can progress on. So kings, if we move from priest to kings, kings, Deuteronomy 17 actually sets it out very clearly. Kings, in the ideal sense, are to have the law written, one that they've written themselves and approved by the priests, that they will follow all the days of their life. So just because you've matured doesn't give you permission out of obedience. Just because you've gotten another level of authority doesn't give you out of an, an out. You still have to be obedient. And that's what Deuteronomy 17 sets before us. But we do see a progression in the type of knowledge that they have. So 2 Samuel 14, this is, a, this is the point where Absalom has killed his brother and he's been sent out of the city. He's fled. And David doesn't want to bring him back. And Joab, his general, general, says, I think he should be brought back. So he sends this woman to tell him sort of a parable. It's a weird story. And in the middle of it comes this portion, 2 Samuel 14, 16 through 17. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. So as you've moved into kingship, you've acquired wisdom to know good and evil. And again, we can look at at, um, 1 Kings 3. This is where God comes to um, Solomon. Thank you. Sorry. Comes to Solomon and says, 
you know, what, what would you ask of me? Like, what would you ask? And so Solomon's praying, and he says, um, did I go to the right one? First Kings 3, 7, 9, yeah. And now I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? So again, Solomon's asking for that knowledge of good and evil. He says, I'm a child, but I need that knowledge of good and evil if I'm going to be the king I need to be. And so it isn't just an absence of knowledge of good and evil. It is that, but it comes through obedience that we get these things. So then... That story right after this, right? So Solomon asks for this, God grants it to him, and you get to see what a wise king looks like, right? This is that story where the one child dies, the two women come, and they say, which one is it? Now, there is no law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that covers how to deal with this situation. There's nothing about that. It requires wisdom way beyond what we've given in just obedience. There's something more that we have to move into to be able to make those type of decisions. And so Solomon demonstrates wisdom, true wisdom, in what he does there. And you can look at so many other examples, but kings move into this wise rule because obedience came first. James Jordan puts it this way, there must be a priestly phase of our life during which we learn wisdom through obedience and struggle before we enter into a kingly phase and have wisdom to give to others. Obedience first, and then wisdom. James Jordan says, um, again, continuing with the the, the second phase uh, for us is this. In the second phase of maturity, the people of God must act according to wise judgment, the knowledge of good and evil. They can discern the right course of action, even in situations the law doesn't explicitly address and which is what we see with Solomon. So, um, moving on to prophets. To first note with prophets is is that if we look at stories like Nathan and David or Samuel and Saul, we recognize that when a a prophet comes to a king, kings are subservient to prophets. Prophets have greater authority over the king. And so even though the king is the wise ruler— the prophet is still above them. And so that's really interesting and really important to keep track of. First prophet in the Bible. If you're reading through the first person that's called a prophet in the Bible, anyone? Abraham, right? Now, if you were to ask most people, including myself, what initially you were to describe as what a prophet looks like, I would say the life of Abraham doesn't really fit into that category of how I would write down what a prophet looks like. So, then we got to get a better understanding of what a prophet looks like. So we'll go to Amos 7, 1 through 9. And hopefully that'll give us some more insight here. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. 
Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me, showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, with that story in mind, Abraham is called prophet when he's in Gerar, when his wife is taken from him, and God comes and says, hey, to the king, you're going to die if Abraham doesn't intercede for you. What's the story that comes before that? Do you remember what's the last time we ran into Abraham? It's the story of right before God goes and strikes down Sodom and Gomorrah, which sounds a lot like Amos right there, right, type of thing. Abraham intercedes on behalf of the people. So the first function of a prophet is to be an intercessory, a mediary between God and what his judgments are. Not as if to correct God and say you're wrong, but to point out other aspects of his character because you've been so matured, you know his character. And that is what Abraham has done. He's walked so long with God that he's even, God even comes and sits down and has a meal with him. And then this conversation happens, right? So he's had such a relationship with God that that's where, he's, where he is at now. So Amos 3.7 puts it this way. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Because you've matured and you've grown, now you actually have a greater responsibility and a greater um, interaction with God. And so with that being said, now your prophetic, what you are as a prophet is not just to observe, but to actually influence how things go. And that is what we're seeing in, say, Amos or so many other ones. And the reason that that's important is Abraham Herschel puts it this way. The prophet is more than a messenger. He is a person who stands in the presence of God, Jeremiah 15, 19, who stands in the counsel of the Lord, Jeremiah 23, 18, who is a participant, as it were, in the counsel of God, not a bearer of dispatches who functions in a limited to being just sent on errands. He is a counselor as well as a messenger. He's a counselor as well as a messenger. So he provides messages, but he also counsels with God. And you can think of all of the stories of, of visions of all of the prophets who end up in God's presence seeing stuff. Everything from the weird, like Micaiah's dream of being sitting there and seeing God discuss with, with his counsel about how he's going to bring judgment on Ahab to Ezekiel's vision, to Isaiah's vision, all of them have different visions of being in God's presence. That's part of what's, what's brought in. We're, as a prophet, he's, they're brought in to a greater responsibility, and so they get to sit in on council meetings. If, you're not, you know, if you don't have enough authority, you don't brought into those type of things. Exodus 7, 1 to 2. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell, per- tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So Abraham, I'm sorry, Moses, 
Moses, is like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron is like the prophet. So Moses speaks, and Aaron communicates it. So there's something about speaking what God says, right? We know that. That's, that's a pretty clear one. So we understand that, that, it's, that there is this God speaks, and the prophet is the one who communicates it. Judges 6, 7 through 10. What's interesting is that if you start to think about, well, what does a prophet, when they're speaking for God, what's the function of that speaking for God? What's it supposed to do? Judges 6, 7 through 10. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, as a prophetic speech that seems to let something down, I mean, you could have called up a historian and gotten the same answer, right? Like, what did you need a prophet to come and tell you that for? (laughs) Just read back through the other sections and go, oh, yeah, 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 okay, that's right. We didn't do these things. We didn't do these things. So what is a prophet functioning for if he just tells you what's already happened before? And so we can look at other examples. I think one of the ones that really helps from the standpoint of it's, a vis- it's such a great visual of what prophecy is supposed to do is to go to Ezekiel and his dry bones. There is bones on the ground and God says prophesy over them, Ezekiel, and they are knitted together and they are brought back to life. And so prophecy at its root is functioning to bring about transformation. And you can see that again, even in just the overall structure of Ezekiel's entire book. At the very beginning, God says, dig through the walls of the temple, and Ezekiel does. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to dig through one of these walls? I mean, just like a little bit of it? It doesn't dig through very well. So a temple is supposed to be pretty structurally, you know, have great structural integrity, and he digs through it. That's pretty concerning, right? By the end of it, you get his new vision of what the temple looks like. It's high walls, thick walls, well-guarded walls. He has brought about a transformation, you know, in in what he's seeing about what the people of God are like and what it's supposed to be functioning. He's brought about a transformation. Zechariah has the same type of thing. You get to see the teardown of a false temple and the rebuilding of a new temple. And we could just go through example after, after, after example. The prophet brings about transformation in what he speaks. That's the intended function of what a prophet's supposed to do. So to quote James Jordan on this, becoming a prophet is the third phase of our lives, our eldership, when we have not only acquired wisdom, but have tested our wisdom through years of being kings and have now acquired the ability to pass on both law and wisdom to others, those coming after this, because we are mature enough to know how to pray, how to advise God, and thus we are mature enough to advise others also. So we've moved from priest obedience to wise king who can rule correctly to prophet who mediates and brings transformation. He intercedes on behalf of people and brings transformation. And so there's maturing as we move through. Now, let, I'm, I, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, I hear what you're saying, David, but there's nobody in the Bible who starts as a priest, becomes a king, and then is a prophet. Or is there? Let's start with Adam. Adam, when we meet in Genesis 1, God says to the, the man, 
he should be ruling over the earth, right? And he should be ruling over the, the, you know, the animals. We get to Genesis 2, and he's, we're told he's a priest, and we're like, wait a second. He was supposed to be ruling. What's going on here? Move a little bit farther into Genesis 2, and God says, come and name the animals with me. Now, who's been naming up to this point? Yeah, God's the only one who's been naming. So all of a sudden, he's bringing Adam into an invitation. He's inviting Adam into greater responsibility. And Adam names with him. So you get to Genesis 3, and an animal shows up. And it's questioning things. But you go, Adam's got this. He's He's the king. He's supposed to be ruling over the animals. But he doesn't. He lets the animals rule over him. And so he fails. And so he doesn't end up ruling in the way we'd expect him to. We go forward to Noah. Now, Noah is given a lot of rules. Build this, do this, collect these things. He does it. He does it faithfully. And he continues to be obedient as he moves through. Lots of really hard things. For a long time, he's faithful. He comes off the ark. God gives him a new covenant. And then he sets up a garden. Wait a second. Who was it that set up the first garden? Oh, that's right. It was God. So now Noah is setting up the garden. When Ham sins... Noah passes judgment. Before that was God who was passing judgment before this point. When, at, when Noah's naked, who covers Noah? It's not God. It's his sons. So we're seeing a functioning, a greater responsibility that's been moved into through obedience of Noah and his family. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't flaws and mistakes being made. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is we are seeing a maturing as we're moving through. If we look through to Jacob's life, we see him, start first phase of his life, he's to be learning obedience. He doesn't do it very well. He moves off and goes with Laban. He spends a lot of time with animals. You'd expect him to start doing better. Still doesn't do it great. Then he's supposed to be a king, ruling over his sons or other things like that. Doesn't do it great. But he gets to Pharaoh with Joseph. And Pharaoh's in charge of a nation. And Jacob's the one who's blessing Pharaoh, not the other way around. So he's moved into an even greater responsibility. Not always because we do a great job at it. And I think that that's really, hopefully feels pretty, you know, like it's a great promise that in spite of our, our lack of functioning always well, that God continues to mature. Moses, uh, Michael Bull puts it this way. Thus we see the process of the three offices in the three 40-year spans in the life of Moses. He was instructed from childhood in the court of Pharaoh until he was ready to rule as a prince. He was instructed in the wilderness to rule not as a tyrant, but as a shepherd. He was then called by God to speak to Pharaoh. So you get to see the progression of priestly to kingly, where he's finally ruling over the animals like he should, until he's ready to be a prophet. And so we get to see this progression. Then we go to Jesus. Of course, Jesus is going to get it right on all these phrases, right? So you get to read in John where he says, everything I do is what, the God, what, um, what God is telling me to do. I'm obedient the entire time. Obedient to death on the cross. So in one phase, he's obedient his entire life. You see that. And when he gets to the cross, he's given a crown, an elevated position, a title, and he is king, ruling And then we get to two afterwards and the ascension. And now he's sitting in God's council next to him. So he's moved from priest to king to prophet. 
We can look at it another way, which we've looked at, which was earlier, we looked at this year, the idea of Matthew, right? So Matthew shows us how Jesus is the faithful Israelite all the way through. And so the first portion of the book, we see a lot of, of rules and Jesus sort of following those rules and showing us what that looks like. The middle of the book, we get to see him acting as faithful king, bringing about rule in so many different ways. Everything from the idea of the the man with the withered hand reminds us of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam has a prophet sent to him and he stretches out his hand against that prophet because he doesn't like what he says. His hands withers. And Jesus meets a man with a withered hand and heals it and brings about true kingship. And we move forward and you get to things like Matthew 24, which seems super weird. And guess what he's speaking as? He's speaking as a prophet. So he's functioning as priest king and prophet. So no matter how we look at it, Jesus continues to be faithfully priest, king, and prophet. Now, with that being said, it's also amazing how many times we run into priests like Nadab and Abihu, like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, bad kings like Saul, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, or even Solomon. He starts off as wise king, but then he proceeds to break every rule in Deuteronomy 17. Every one of them. He becomes the opposite of what he's supposed to be. Prophets, we get things like Jeroboam, right? There's this prophet sent to Jeroboam, and he goes to Jeroboam, and he tells him the prophecy, and Jeroboam says, you know, like, first they have some conflict, then Jeroboam says, stay, stay with me. And he goes, I can't. God says, I gotta go home. I can't collect, I can't pass go, and I can't collect $200. I gotta go straight home. That's where I gotta go. And so he heads home. But another prophet comes to him and says, God says, you really should come back and have lunch with me. So he does. But God never told him that. So he disobeyed as a prophet. And so he's killed by a lion. So just because you've moved to prophet doesn't prevent you, doesn't um, remove you from the responsibility of obedience. You still have to be obedient. Or we can get to Jonah. I mean, obviously, Jonah's such an obvious one. We won't beat that one. But point is, obedience is still a great, you know, great expectation here. So to quote James Jordan again, as bad priests, we are disobedient and rebellious. Rebellious. As bad kings, we rule poorly. As bad prophets, prophets, we give bad advice and set things in motion that are in the wrong direction. The good news is Christ lives inside of us. And he's faithful, priest, king, and prophet. And so in spite of what we, how we try to mess it up, Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us brings about that transformation, which is why we read in 1 Peter 2, 9 that we're part of the royal priesthood. Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So we're priests, we're kings, and Pentecost, Alistair Roberts puts it this way, Pentecost mirrors the dedication by God of his prophets, such as Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Moses. This is an indication that we are all prophets through the Holy Spirit. So we're priests, kings, and prophets already. Because Christ lives inside of us, we've been matured. We've been brought from obedience to wise rule to advisor to God. Not because of something we've done, but because of what he's done. Now, I've included a nice little chart for you guys of sort of the breakdown of just sort of like what I'm I'm sort of showing here. So from the standpoint of location of authority, priests serve in the temple. 
Kings serve in the land, prophets serve in the world. The distinctive quality of a priest is obedience. The distinctive quality of a king is wise rule. Prophets serve for mediation and transformation or intercession. Even from the standpoint of judgment, priests only according to the rules of the law. Kings use a wider sphere of wisdom to make judgment outside of what the law covers. And prophets speak judgment of God upon a person, group, or a whole culture. Again, for the function of bringing out transformation. Specific biblical literature. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are priestly. They're pretty easy to follow in some ways. You can sort of follow what it tells you to do. You get to the kingly stuff, boy, it gets a little bit more complicated, and the prophets get real weird. So, applications to what we've just been looking at from the standpoint of how does this apply to you? Reading the Bible. As a priest, it's pretty easy to understand what the gospel is and what to do about it. It doesn't take a lot of cleverness. Now, to understand exactly how it, that it works, boy, there's lots of books written on that, and they get really confusing and complicated. But how do you respond? Very simple, very clear what to do. Kingly wisdom gets more complicated. I mean, think about Psalms or Proverbs. It often doesn't tell you what to do. It just tells you stuff and asks you, invites you to meditate on it and to do something with it. Think of Job. Job is considered wisdom literature. You get to the point where there's all these chapters where you know, these friends are advising Job. And they tell you all these things and you're reading it going, yeah, 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 yeah. They're all applied wrong. It's not just obedience. They actually have to apply it and they've applied it wrong. And so Job is showing us how to apply wisdom to a situation to know how to see deeper than just obedience, but to say, yes, these are true characters of God, but what is he doing in this situation? And so that's one of the, this point of we're moving from just obedience in how we're reading the Bible to understanding how does wisdom work. And Proverbs or Ecclesiastes does the same type of thing. Proverbs 25 says, it is the glory of God to conceal things. You stop there and you go, okay. But the next part says, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Now, first off, those don't seem like they sort of like tie together unless you sort of think about it for a while, and you could go through so many Proverbs who do the same thing. It says one thing, it says another thing, and you look at him and go, was he ADD? Like, what was going on? <laughs> no, it requires wisdom. It requires you to stop and meditate on what it's doing. It's not just telling you what to do. Prophets, boy. At that point, the Bible has become so part of who you are, that you communicate it to others and with even greater insights. And so when you read the prophets, they've integrated all of this obedience and wisdom literature and what they're communicating out is new and different and yet the same. But it requires greater wisdom and greater meditation to understand what's being said. Just apply priest, king, prophet to yourself in general about learning something new. For instance, taking up cooking. When you first start cooking, you probably should start with recipes and follow the recipes. Shouldn't just start changing things for the sake of changing things. If you don't know what you're doing, stick to the recipe. But if you've done it for a long time, you've learned that obedience, you've started to see how things are working, you can start to change the recipe a little bit. 
and you try something, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And my wife can attest to that for me. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. If you've done it a really long time, at some point you have achieved so much insight that you can both communicate it to others and even have greater communi- you know, thoughts and meditations on what does it look like for cooking as we move forward. What does that look like? How should we change things? What new device should we develop? Those are things that only if you've spent enough time as a priest and as a king, as you learn to cook. And you could do the same thing. How about cell phones? Cell phones, right? You get a cell phone. Oh, I see some flinches there. So, because we, we're given a manual, but do we read the manual? But then we get really upset when the thing doesn't do what if the manual, we'd follow the manual, it would have told us to do. But if you read the manual and you learn the manual, then at some point you can not only do what the things it tells you to do, but you can do the things that are sort of like not covered by the manual. And then at some point you can actually advise those who are creating the next cell phone what we could do to improve it. But if you just come in and say, well, I don't like this cell phone, you should change this. You've never been a good priest or a good king. Why would we expect you to be a good prophet? from the standpoint of offering advice on what a new cell phone should look like. And you can apply this to so many aspects of your life. Parenting. Kids are to be priests. That's what, we're, what they're raised to be. But as we're raising them, they're to be kings. And so as such, we have to keep that in mind because it's very easy to, fo- to fall to one side. So many rules that by the time they're ready to move out on their own, they have no idea how to rule wisely because they were never taught how. They only know how to obey. And vice versa, you didn't give them enough rules, and so they never learned how to rule wisely because they never learned how to obey. And so this is a, a hard one. I'm not telling you. I've got four. I, I, mine, I don't know about the rest of you, but since I had mine at home, I never got the manual. It just, it, I don't know if they give you one in the hospital, but I didn't get one. So I've been trying to use this, right? So, you know, like, uh, a successful example, I would say, for me is um, one, uh, when I have this expectation that for my children, that when we're near a fire, that they have certain types of clothing on. For instance, closed-toed shoes, not sandals, things like that. So one day I'm, we're getting ready to do some fireworks, and the girls are arguing over whether or not they should or shouldn't be wearing closed-toed shoes. Now, I never told them that when they wear fireworks, what they wear. They're applying what they know of fire to fireworks. Now, I was pretty sad. Like, I was pretty happy about that. We could list a lot of not-so-great ones, right? <laughs> but the point is, is, like, that's, that's what, you know, like, what God's inviting us into, right? Which is, he gives us something, and we're to learn to obey it. But then we're to say, like, what is, how do we do, how do we use that and move that out in our lives? So both recognizing as we are children of God that we're supposed to be transformed, but also as parents, that that's what we're raising our children from, from priests to kings. And as such, there's that impact. Now, once you get to kids, they're now out. They are kings. They're supposed to be ruling wisely, supposed to be. That doesn't mean at that point that then the parents are just like, free, clear. No, you're still supposed to be influencing because you want your your children to be transformed from kings to prophets. And so you don't stop. Now, the influence is different, and the way you change them and the way you interact with them is different. But your goal is still to see them mature and to grow 
and to be transformed so that they're not only wise rulers, but that they can, in, you know, that they can intercede on other people's behalf to bring change where change is needed. Even interactions with people, right, can, be, can sort of function under this. You meet somebody new, you see them struggling. You can try to apply wisdom to their life, but sometimes it's best before you apply wisdom to their life to just learn what's going on with them, why they're doing what's happening with them. You start in that priestly phase of just learning, just functioning in understanding what's going on before you start to apply wisdom. Once you get that understanding, then you can more wisely advise them and at that point even bring transformation. But it's only for starting as a priest that you can bring that change. Instead of just walking up to somebody and saying, oh, I see your problem here, it's this. You need to change that. That still can be true, but the way in which you do it, if you start as priest, it's a way better way to start. Before I close, any questions, thoughts, comments? All right. Then a final quote from James Jordan to close. Man was designed by God to be his agent for the glorification of the world. As men matured in their tasks, however, they themselves would grow from glory to glory as priests, kings, and prophets. Though sin sought to wreck God's design through Jesus Christ, we have been put back on track. May God raise up a generation of mature Christians who can see the world as it truly is and serve it according to his will. Amen.